Hello, listeners. I am David Blakesley, and this is episode 128 of Criterion Reflections, a podcast that's methodically working its way through the Criterion Collection in chronological order of original release. And here we are uh, in uh, July of 1972, or I think maybe it's August of 1972 now. We've moved on a little bit in our timeline. And I've got a couple friends, and together we are going to take a little mosey on up the street and check out the last house on the left, see what's happening inside that dreadful, ominous address there. Uh, This is a Wes Craven debut feature film that kind of launched his career, as well as the career of Sean Cunningham, who was a producer. Craven, of course, has a pretty fabled career as a horror director, Uh, Besides this film, uh, best known for uh, establishing the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise and also Scream later on, Sean Cunningham, the innovator who came up with the Friday the 13th concept and kind of established another long-running horror franchise. There's a lot of interesting stuff happening in this film. It's a polarizing, difficult film. I'll have more to say about it. Uh, when we uh, get to kind of giving our first impressions and kind of where we're at with the film. Uh, This is also a movie that's really not been part of the Criterion channel for quite a while. I think I have it on my spreadsheet showing that the last time Criterion featured it, and the only time, was when they were part of the Filmstruck uh, streaming service, and they presumably brought it on as one of their kind of horror bundle October-themed things that they've tended to do pretty much every year since they've had a streaming service going. And uh, even though I actually thought about maybe just skipping this one and moving on over, I really just couldn't do that. I, I had my own reasons for saying, yep, we got to stick to this. We got to cover this one and have a conversation. And, um, and I'll say more about that again. Let's go ahead and introduce our guests who will help kind of guide me through this uh, treacherous territory. So let's start with Richard Doyle. Good afternoon, Richard. How's it going? Hey, it's going great. Good to be here. Excellent. Well, appreciate it again having you on. And another horror aficionado, Jason Beamish. Jason, how's it going today? Uh, doing very well, thank you. How, are, how about yourself? Doing good. I'm definitely looking forward to getting this film uh, kind of off out of my system, <laughs> off my schedule. <laughs> Let's have the conversation. Let's give it its due, its coverage, and then uh, move on to things that might be a little bit more my typical jam as far as... Uh, you know, the enjoyment of cinema is concerned. Uh, I do not come to condemn this movie necessarily. I want to acknowledge it. Uh, but uh, anybody who's kind of gotten to know my personality or, or kind of the types of films that I most gravitate towards might understand that this actually is my first time watching it in preparation for this episode. And uh, it'll be good to sort of get this one behind, behind me, though I, I do genuinely say I want to hear what you guys have to say about it because I think you're going to give me and our listeners, some good things to think about and some interesting perspectives on this film. So, um, yeah, I've said a little bit about it already, shared a few thoughts. Um, Richard, why don't you just go ahead and give us a little bit of a quick synopsis of your basic take on this film. And I'll give Jason a chance to do that. And then maybe I'll say a little bit more about my uh, you know, my regard for uh, The Last House on the Left. So, uh, Richard, I'll go ahead and get you started and we'll go from there. All right. Um I first saw this film on VHS back in the 90s um, when I was in grad school in Halifax. There were about three or four of us who were really into horror films, and we did a a night of Wes Craven films we hadn't seen, and we watched this one with The People Under the Stairs, which was a very, very strange double feature. Um, I uh, was not a fan of this then, and I'm not really a fan of it now. 
Um, I'd say I have minor reasons for not being a big fan of it. I think the um, comedy, especially the comedy involving the police is in this is pretty terrible. Uh, I think it's kind of lazily put together and the, the continuity is highly questionable at times. But those are sort of minor complaints. I think my major complaint is it it doesn't really have control of tone in a way it really has to, given the plot involving the murder of the of the two young girls. And it ends up, I would say, accidentally knowing what Wes Craven is like, sympathizing far too much with the uh, the aggressors in this, and not giving a very good character portrait of either the girls or the family so it ends up being a more distressing film than it intends to be and it and it ends up like not really achieving what it wants to achieve okay so i'm hearing kind of a, a technical criticism here and you know you know questioning of tone of pacing of characters you know who's developed who is not what are the intentions of the filmmaker versus what's the result that it generates? I think those are all pretty salient points, and I think we will have a chance to kind of pick up and, and you know expand on some of those ideas. But uh, let's go ahead and hear Jason's kind of opening bid. Well, what do you think about Last House on the Left? What made you interested in being part of this episode? Well, I've seen this a few times, and with Wes Craven being such an important fixture in horror, as well as Sean Cunningham, but to be able to see kind of his roots before going kind of off of what Richard said, it's fairly amateurish um, mm-hmm. throughout the film. It's not a polished feature by any sense, but he's, uh, he's uh, investigating what's going on in the world when he's trying to make this picture. And I, I'm not going to say that it's anything that can be enjoyed. Um, I would maybe be a little concerned about people that do enjoy it. Um, I think they're out there actually. And maybe we'll talk about that a little bit as well. (laughs) I don't doubt that for a second. Um, It's just the kind of movie that you can watch and you can get something from maybe, but enjoyment's a little, little iffy again. Also Mm. it's the continuity is a mess. And so it's not a perfect movie by any stretch, but without it, the horror would look vastly different than it does today. Mm. You know, one thought I had is that this movie or something like it, given where things were happening culturally within the movie industry with uh, censorship standards, uh, kind of loosening or even collapsing in some, some aspects, uh, some ways, a movie like this was kind of inevitable and in some ways maybe Wes Craven gets the credit as the guy who was the first one to cross that line and it wasn't just him I mean it was this whole little collective of uh, as you said amateurs who kind of got together Uh, yes they did have some technical skills yes some of them had worked in film you know before maybe we'll talk a little bit about some of the uh, colorful backgrounds of some of the uh, of the, the cast and crew uh, but you know, this is a film, yeah, I guess maybe I'll go kind of give my opening take as well, which I've known about for a long time when I was in high school in the late seventies. Uh, this is a time when, you know, horror movies were, you know, some would argue in kind of a golden age. And I saw a lot of those horror films, uh, night of the living dead, dawn of the dead, uh, 
uh, Friday the 13th, um, Poltergeist. Oh, what else? Eraserhead. Uh, I did see The Hills Have Eyes in its original theatrical run. Had not seen this one. And I had not seen this one up until um, just getting ready for this episode. But I've been aware of its reputation for a long time. Um, on my Facebook group, I put a poster in, as which is typically my, my habit with these films. And I typically look for a poster from its original release, a film's original kind of first run, just to kind of put you back in that period, give you a sense of how it was initially marketed. Uh, the poster I used for this one was a marketing uh, poster to film distributors uh, in, night, like I think it was 1979, which is the year I graduated high school. And it's talking about the incredible returns per screen, you know, the, the gross, uh, you know, a little play on words perhaps there uh that this film was generating uh as audiences were almost like going into it as a, a rite of passage or an endurance test you know with the uh, infamous marketing slogan it's only a film or it's only a movie it's only a movie it's only a movie a way of sort of reminding yourself that these horrific atrocities that you're seeing on screen and graphic detail in sort of a pseudo-documentary, unblinking style, um, they're not really happening. Although the, the the way the filmmaking is done with that kind of amateurish, handheld, just point the camera where things are happening and capture whatever is going on in front of the lens, does put you in that sense. And also because the 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 gore and the the brutality is 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 so uncompromising. It, it is a very unsettling experience, and especially, again, going back into the early, even mid and late 70s, there is something so unvarnished about this film, the way it's made, and the, you know, the incredible sadistic cruelty of it, um, and the fact, as is made in one of the commentary tracks, that this isn't a, you know, supernatural horrific monster it's uh, there is one short nightmare sequence in here but otherwise these are just really mean horrible awful people doing you know unforgivable things to people who don't really have any even remote degree of deserving their fate it's just the the whimsical cruelty of life visiting itself on these two young women and by extension their families and anybody else who maybe cares about them so you know, the way the film was presented was, like I say, this endurance test. Like, can you handle it? Uh, will will this make you throw up? Will you pass out? Will you, you know, have nightmares for weeks on end after watching this film? And I think that that sort of sensationalism is both what sort of established the film's reputation in my mind, uh, but also did not necessarily work on me to say, I've got to see this. I've got to see what it's all about. I had seen a lot of those movies, you know, like I say, I, I kind of rattled off a list. Alien, I'll put that in there as well. And I, I found that, you know, even though I enjoyed some of those films quite a bit, watching people getting dismembered and mutilated and all of that just didn't really, you know, draw me in to want to just pursue that, that whole vein of movie making. And I say that not in any judgment or not any kind of, you know, condescension towards people who you know, are big into this genre. It's just something that never really clicked with me in the same way. So I, I've kind of let it go by. And yet I do have to acknowledge there is something, you know, quite powerful and, you know, uh, unforgettable 
and in some ways compelling about watching a movie like this because it does investigate that nasty, cruel, horrible, you know, just outrageous aspect of life that is the true lived experience of so many people uh, throughout different parts of the world and over the course of all the, you know, centuries, you know, millennia that humans have lived in society where, you know, violence and cruelty often have their way without much, you know, interruption or obstacles to prevent these terrible things from happening. And so, yeah, I, and I guess, you know, we don't necessarily have to break down the whole philosophy of the horror film, but the fact that this movie was such a landmark, it did kind of create this new standard, it expanded the territory um, into, into new dimensions and launched some pretty formidable careers. Uh, that makes this film definitely very important and I think worth talking about. So a few of my thoughts, who'd like to pick it up from there? Well, I don't think we really talked too much about the uh, quote unquote plot. <laughs> let's uh, go ahead. Yeah, let's go ahead and sum it up because no, I think that I'm was just, fair. I'm going to read off the back of the packaging here. Sure. Um, go for it's it. a harrowing tale of faith, revenge, and savagery. With austere simplicity, the director tells a story of the rape and murder of a virgin and her father's ruthless pursuit of vengeance against the three killers. Uh, starring frequent Bergman collaborator uh, Mac. <laughs> oh, it's the Virgin Spring. Folks, if Oops. you've watched the Virgin Spring, you've seen yes. a better looking version of Last House on the Left. Hmm. Um, yeah. It is. Two girls are headed off to go to a concert. And they are trying to score some weed before they go. Uh, at the same time, three people broke out of prison and are trying to lie low. And one of the, the girls go up to the most squirrely guy, I guess, of the uh, escaped convicts, and he injects them into his trio of terror. Well, mm -hmm. there's four people, but... Right. Um, and then they just try to escape, and all hell breaks loose for them. And then uh, eventually the... The convicts, as we've mentioned already, do end up killing the the uh, the girls, and they're still on the lamp, so they find themselves trying to sleep over at a house, and they realize it is the house of one of the uh, it was the the home where one of the girls lived, and so they would be staying with the girl's parents. Uh, the parents find out that something happened with their daughter. They go out and find that their daughter is dead. And they don't take it very lightly. Uh, <laughs> no, it sets imagine. the stage. Right, it sets the stage for you know epic primal revenge. Yeah, and yeah, definitely absolutely. needed to bring the Virgin Spring in. I did happen to just watch that this morning, um, as well as a rewatch of the film with one of the commentary tracks. So I've spent a pretty good chunk of this day, you know, kind of immersing myself in this in this saga and and let's just talk a little bit about you know revenge horror i mean that is yeah. a very powerful sort of subgenre within the larger horror landscape uh, mm -hmm. where something terrible happens which sets the stage for you know vengeance and uh retribution and paybacks sometimes of the most gruesome sort uh with a bit of social commentary in the uh 
in the Virgin Spring, you definitely see there's this kind of uh, primal battle between Christianity and, and Norse paganism. You know, the uh, servant girl is a worshiper of Odin, and right before the uh, virginal daughter who's on her way to church to deliver candles and and in an act of piety despite her vanity and self-absorption uh you know she's overtaken by these three goat herds who recognize this unique opportunity for them to have such proximity to you know a beautiful and apparently wealthy young woman uh they take advantage of her end up killing her and uh you know when the parents find out you have that just epic you know max von Sydow and all of his manly you know glory you know beating himself with birch branches grabbing his sword grabbing his dagger and you know just taking you know the most righteous indignation revenge on on the the attackers who killed his innocent daughter and there's even a little bit of a supernatural and and faith infused um the denouement of the story you know kind of it's just based on an old norse folk tale and uh, you know, a song uh, that kind of provided the 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 basis for Ingmar Bergman. To, I think this that was kind of his uh, follow up to the Seventh Seal, a kind of a return to that medieval setting with those kind of philosophical, theological questions of, you know, how can a God in all of His Majesty and silence watch, you know, the the misery and wretchedness of humanity without intervention? Of course, Bergman went on to explore those themes in other ways. So, you, you know, you're taking that story of revenge, but putting it in, I would say, you know, arguably kind of a, a higher a moral and ethical plane because of the way the story is told. This does have that same motif of the killers kind of stumbling into the parents' household and the parents discovering, you know, the, the tragedy that's occurred and, and settling the score in, in the most vicious of ways. But it really, you know, it takes it out of that kind of mythical medieval past and brings it into all of the banality and kind of nastiness of contemporary middle class suburban life here in the USA with with a little bit of a class structure, I guess, because the convicts are clearly street people, rugged. Well, at least uh, three of them are. There's the weasel guy who seems to be a little bit more, you know, uh, just sociopathic but he's dressed better and seems like he could blend into society a little bit more mainstream uh they they have their you know attitudes and resentments towards the you know the the well-to-do middle-class respectable folks that sort of comes out at the end there but there's there's you know very little of that kind of uh, more epic or mythic type of context that you get in a story like the virgin spring so taking that basic energy and putting it into a very mundane and familiar setting at least to american viewers i thought was a pretty interesting stroke i guess there's a a social comment or perhaps even a satirical uh note that that wes craven and his crew are trying to strike there which is which is kind of why i don't think the film works (laughs) (laughs) okay yeah i'll put it this way i mean you know me i I am a fan Mm -hmm. of this kind of film Right. Sure. Yeah. You're very eclectic but, and there's nothing that's really like too far out there as far as the content is concerned. It's how it's executed. I take it. Yeah. And, and I think like a, a film kind of makes an agreement with you about what it's trying to do. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think it's easy to overstate like 
how much this film is breaking new ground, but it's certainly breaking some ground here. But this film could be offering to be just fun. Whether you like that or not, it could be making that offer, but it's not. Or it could be just being sort of a nihilistic exercise in aren't things horrible, Mm -hmm. but it's not. It's got some pretense to making a serious point. And I think my biggest problem with it is it it can't follow through on that. Right. It, it, Mm -hmm. and I think it is largely just the inexperience and, and the fact that not just the inexperience, partly the inexperience and partly that, you know, David Hess and the and Fred Lincoln and the actors playing the villains are kind of more charismatic than the other actors. Yeah, they are definitely the stronger personalities. Yeah. They are the that's the where the energy of the film comes from primarily. Yeah. It ends up favoring them accidentally and making a film that sort of accidentally, I think, revels in the in the torture of the girls and can't deliver a denouement that that gives you a greater point to it, even though it clearly is aspiring to do that. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think it it's it's a film that is more unpleasant than it wants to be in many ways. And, and somehow that's part of the cause of its reputation, but it's also a bit of its failure. Like it can't, um, it can't make a, it can't manage to make a greater point out of all this other than the fact that, boy, isn't the world terrible, Hmm. which could be a valid thing to do, but I don't think it's what it sets out to do. And that's why it it really rubs me the wrong way. It's got a sort of seriousness of tone to it that doesn't match the content of the film. Hmm. I have a few things that Jason, I want to give you a chance. You want to respond to any of Richard's points there? I think I am going to let Mr. Craven respond. Um, Stephen Thrower wrote an essay for the Arrow uh, Blu-ray, and it has a quote in here from 1982. Um, sometimes I think it was a terrible film to make. Other times I'm glad that, uh, I'm glad I was that angry. I have to be honest, even for me now, it isn't a pleasant film to watch, but I genuinely felt I portrayed what it actually felt like to kill somebody for real. The killing is absolutely heartless. The protracted violence was very human to me. I wanted to make a statement about violence in America and American movies at the time. You must remember that I made this film at the time when people were watching villages being burned on the news as they ate their dinner. Yeah. So in in Vietnam, he's talking about, right. As well as other war scenes. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Was, was he trying to make a greater point? I I imagine he would say yes, if he had had the chance, but what, uh, Richard again was saying charismatically you're almost rooting for David Hess even though one should never root for David Hess especially against the father who was about as fun to watch as uh, white paint drying <laughs> he didn't yeah, even have a yeah. chance of uh, having any sort of shade of interest yeah, yeah, you compare the father figure in Last House on the Left with Max von Sydow's character in yeah, Virgin Spring. It's, it's you know, uh, uh, yeah, just it's completely two different types of, of masculinity, two different types of, of fatherly rage and dignity um, when, when faced with such a you know, horrific 
situation with with their with their only child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I want to. I, I I I have seen and heard Wes uh, Craven's statements along that line, and definitely there's a commentary track that I listened to today uh, with him and Sean Cunningham watching the film and. I think Wes Craven, you can tell that he's a guy with some very mixed ambivalence about this movie. I, I don't know that Sean Cunningham had that same kind of dilemma, you know, of, of how to process this film or where was this coming from in, in, in his youth. Uh, I don't know a ton about Wes Craven. I know he's got a pretty loyal following and he does seem like a man of some certainly intelligence, insight nuanced sensitivity uh, he and i think you know he is an auteur of sorts who wants to you know establish that he's not just a a pure exploitation cynical you know schlockmeister uh, who's just out there to make a buck obviously his movies several of them were extremely successful both influential with critics with audiences as well as financially so he's i'm sure he became you know, pretty wealthy over the long haul, although he may not have made a lot of direct money off of this uh, based on the rights and all of that, but it certainly got him started. Um, to me, it feels like this film was coming out of, as, as he himself acknowledged in that quote, uh, a place of incredible anger and reaction. Uh, one of the things I did learn is that he was brought up in a very strict uh, Baptist household, was not allowed to watch movies, really had to, you know, break out of a very restrictive set of expectations uh, as, a, as a young man. Uh, his father also happened to die when he was very young, around five years old, but he's, uh, he still has dad issues as far as, you know, that his father was a very scary man who, who probably exerted a lot of pressure on him, even as a young boy. And though, you know, those years, you know, were, were very few, you know, relatively speaking, made a big impression. But it does feel like, yeah, this is this is kind of a, a form of a sort of a, a punk rock reactive, you know, outburst of th- thinking what kind of outrageous stuff can we throw in here that's just going to piss off the adults and the authority figures. We're going to revel in the freedom that we can just do whatever we want to do put it on film. They're not going to arrest us. They're not going to stop us. And, and also the ambition of wanting to do something that is bold and, and brash and shocking. I mean, even, even when, uh, in that early scene where the you know, Mary is telling her parents, she's going to see a band called bloodlust <laughs> and the parents talk about, isn't that the band that dismembered a chicken live on stage? <laughs> I just laughed when I saw that. Cause that, yeah, that's the kind of stuff like Alice Cooper was doing around this same time. And, establishing his um his reputation as kind of a a geek rock shocker you know that kind of thing ozzy osbourne went on later on uh, bit the head off of a bat or chicken or something like that so you know these these stories of people just going way over the top uh, you know know, killing animals you know you know pit pissing or barfing on the audience i mean the sex pistols when they were first touring I followed that tour very closely as a fan of the band back in 77, 78. And uh, there were supposedly stories of Sid Vicious peeing on the audience and Johnny Rotten puking on people. And, you know, exaggerated, ridiculous, over-the-top stuff. I mean, the Pistols shows were definitely not for the faint of heart. But people were just embellishing with with every kind of rudeness and crudeness you could come up with. 
to scandalize the, the, the bands and the reputations. And it, it just feels to me like when I was in that scene, you know, I, I didn't wear swastikas myself, but I knew people who did. Of course, Sid Vicious very famously wore swastikas, but there were performers and bands. Uh, there was a group called Nazi Bitch and the Jews, you know, and uh, you know many others that really just, if there was a taboo or any kind of shred of, you know, don't go there, that's exactly where where a lot of us went. And some of the lyrics of some of the songs in the band that I was in called Church Police were very, you know, ridiculous and outrageous uh, the one song that we had that was released on a pretty significant compilation album is called the oven is my friend it's about a boy who licks his oven and it melts his face off you know it's just some of it's just stupid funny crazy reckless young man type of stuff and it just felt to me like this is kind of where Wes Craven is coming from but then later on as he's matured as he's established a career, he, he maybe is thinking back and, and maybe trying to polish up the, uh, the just the pure rebelliousness of what he was doing making this film. Go ahead. I, I'd be careful about the assumption, though, because, like, Wes Craven was not a young man at this point. Okay. Like, he had degrees in, he has a degree in philosophy. That's right, that's teaching, right. And he'd been, been teaching, teaching English literature for, like, 10 okay. years. He, he's in his mid-30s at this point. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, all right. This felt like a younger person's movie, but yeah. go ahead. I, I'm interested to hear more of this. Mm-hmm. So here's my, my skeptical take on this. Wes Craven is a a very erudite fellow. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's a great filmmaker, but he's a good one at times. And he's a very educated man. Right. He's Sean a thinker. Right. Yeah. Sean Cunningham's a showman. Okay. Yep. Yep. I'm more likely to take Sean Cunningham's opinion on this film. Because okay. I think I think an older Wes Craven is trying to re-explain to himself and other people what he was doing at this point. Mm-hmm. Where Cunningham had made two pornographic films, and this film, when it was starting, to, like when they were planning it, was going to be a hardcore pornographic film. Right. And they toned it down. Well, I think they they saw a different path to success. Like if we make it a more of a violence, you know, yeah. uh, boundary smasher rather than a sexual boundary smasher, we might actually have a more successful result. There's a lot of really violent films made in this period. Yeah, yeah. And I think the tendency to say of every single one of them, oh, I mean, it's a reflection on Vietnam and et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> yeah, it's very yeah. easy. It's not that it's not true to some extent. But I don't think it fully explains what's going on, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're trying to make a very sensational film to launch their careers. Yeah. But yeah. they are riding off of, you know, like Wes Craven has brought the premise of The Virgin Spring in here. like Yeah, an art not, film, right. Yeah. yeah, it's not an accident that he's done that, right? He's not mm-hmm. just trying to make an angry film that's going to shock people he's trying to make an angry film that will shock people with some respectable roots to it given who he is yeah part of my problem with the film is if he had just made the angry film it might have worked better Mm -hmm. yeah i think the amount of screen time that's dedicated to the torment of the young women certainly is another huge departure from the model of the virgin spring i mean yeah. There is a rape scene in the Virgin Spring. It is 
gut-wrenching, sad. In fact, almost directly lifting that scene with the with the rapist's face pressed down upon the woman and and just the 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 visual expressions you know that that's very closely emulated in the last house on the left but but you're right the decision to say we're gonna make you know the the middle 40 minutes of this movie about tormenting the girls versus about five maybe seven or eight minutes of tormenting the, the you know the victim in the virgin spring and and then the the revenge even though the revenge is pretty swift and brutal in the virgin spring and both films are roughly about the same length of time you know bergman never really made super long movies up until the you know towards the end of his career um yeah you, you definitely get a sense of you know the the, the parents revenge in, in last house on the left is so quick and so abrupt and it is it's 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 almost farcical you know because of all the shenanigans with the electrified carpet and the chainsaw and the the cops busting in right at the last minute uh the housewife slashing sadie's throat in the swimming pool i mean and even the commentaries kind of talk about how improvised some of those you know final kills were because they had to figure out a way to off all of the bad guys expeditiously in ways that worked on film but you're right the, the the you know what lingers in the memory really is the 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 ordeal that uh mary and her friend was it phyllis um i don't know if that's the name of the actress or not but but the two young women had to go through that that really seems like that's the core of the movie uh in a way that's different than the virgin spring you know we've talked about some other uh films on this podcast that i think are you know, boundary breakers in their own way. Uh, Straw Dogs, uh, Pink Flamingos is another one that really came to mind, even though the yeah. effect and the emotional tone of the films are very different from each other. It's that same kind of scrappy, you know, underground eruption, this ensemble piece of of young people who figured, you know, maybe a few hundred people will ever watch this movie, but we've got enough money to to make it. Let's see what happens. And here we are, you know, 50 years later talking about, you know, two films like that that are really so, you know, unbelievably uh, not only, you know, successful from what they started as, but also influential in their own way. Uh, you can go to, to big films like A Clockwork Orange, or I think I've already mentioned Straw Dogs. I think Deliverance came out soon after this one. Uh, all of these films were all really, you know, pondering uh, you know, the role of, of violence, especially when it's random, especially when it comes into our personal lives, completely unexpected and again, undeserved. Uh, yeah. So in interesting thoughts. Yeah. So, so you're saying Richard, that this is really was more of a, a cynical exploitive choice on Craven's part that he's kind of trying to downplay in some of his later uh, apologetics for the film. No, okay. I, I mean, I think, <laughs> I think the reason for the film's existence is to make something exploitative, right? Yeah, it's drive-in movie fair, you know, right? And I think Craven is trying to add something, you know, some more meaning to it, you know. Hence, the Virgin Spring plot, mm -hmm. okay, and stuff like that. But I, I, my problem is, I don't think he really succeeds at doing that. I think mm. the way in which this film does work 
is as a pretty visceral piece of exploitation, but it's promising you a little bit more, mm. right? And, and it's never really delivering much more than that. And as a visceral piece of exploitation, it's kind of mediocre. Like it, it's very influential, but to a certain extent, it almost feels like it's ad campaign was one of the things that was super, mm. uh, super influential that uh, it's only a movie tagline was borrowed by about four or five other movies down right. the line. But I, somehow I think, this one really caught on and really, you know, kind of overwhelmed its competition. Yeah. But I think it's hard to say, would it have really still been being talked about a lot if Wes Craven hadn't and Sean Cunningham hadn't yeah. made it with other films. Like if there hadn't been Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th, would this film be talked about any more or less than I drink your blood? Hmm. And, and I'm not sure I, I, I believe the answer is yes. I, I think it's partly, I, I do think it might've been partly because I think David Hess is such a, a powerful presence in this who goes on to play the same part in other films. Yeah. He really was pretty compelling, pretty, pretty dynamic. Go ahead. Yeah. It, it may not have simply because it's, it's hard to, it's hard to say to what extent a film like this is influential because of the other work that the other that the people did. I guess what I was saying about Craven is I'd be careful of taking things that he said 30 years later as authoritative about what he was thinking when he made the film. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you and I are pretty much in agreement on that. So maybe I didn't quite express it the way I intended to, but Oh, Jason, you got any thoughts that you want to pick out of any of that? And, were it not for Nightmare on Elm Street or Friday the 13th, I believe the answer to your question is no. I agree. The ad campaign is probably more what makes this film historic than the film itself. Hmm. And that's just something that everybody's going to have to accept. They don't have to like it, but yeah, it, it's, it's kind of true. It, it's like a band that was really good, but just never had that breakthrough hit single. And so they're kind of buried. But the the one band that had that big personality or whatever, they're famous, they're revered, and they went on to bigger and better things. Yeah, I mean, like I say, I have not seen a lot of the, you know, I, you know, I spit on your grave or was it something about drinking blood that you just mentioned, Richard? So, you know, Jay, I don't so, so Jason, like, how much have you seen of other sort of similar horror films of this era uh, to kind of compare this as far as its distinctiveness? I mean, to me, it's pretty distinctive because I just haven't seen. Yeah, I've mean, I've seen Night of the Living Dead, and the, that that this film is often mentioned as sort of part of that sequence of, of of trailblazers in the horror genre. But Richard's point, saying, you know, there's other films that maybe could have broken through if maybe some of the creatives behind them had gone on to do other things or had hit sort of the mainstream. Cause that's the thing. I mean, Wes Craven does seem to have a knack for catching the public popular imagination. And the fact that this film, this little low budget indie scrap together, $90,000, you know, production costs gets something like that arrow <laughs> box set with three discs and all the postcards mm -hmm. and three commentaries and all the making of, I mean, this, this film has an incredibly, you know, it, enormous footprint uh, and legacy. And there are many people who write 
extremely glowing reviews of this film and it, it almost feels like there's a real tender spot in their heart for for this movie which again i'm not gonna stand in judgment or or you know condescension towards anybody who feels that way i i don't i don't see it in the same way but i'm still pretty impressed i guess the phenomenon that is the last house on the left uh does you know get my attention and certainly has given me a lot of food for thought as to what is it about these stories that are so galvanizing uh to people to a lot of people who who want to spend time you know really analyzing it and and re-living it re-experiencing it and that's that's just an interesting object of contemplation for me um well to to answer the initial question quite a few yeah. of like that 70s rape revenge mm -hmm. uh films uh actually i spit on your grave was the, probably the first one that i had seen and that was on 78 i believe right a little bit later yeah but around the same time that this uh, one was really taking off around the country it seemed like mm -hmm. This was a kind of a slow burn. I mean, it had its initial run, but it, it seemed to really expand quite a bit, quite a few years, several years, at least after it was first released. Yeah. I was talking with somebody quite a few years ago about using rape as an inciting incident, and they were telling me how absolutely cheap that is. Well, sure. I mean, it's, it's a thing that you can put into something that everybody either know somebody who has been sexually assaulted mm -hmm. um, or is at least familiar with the trauma that it causes. Sure. And just how can we create an atmosphere that would force this mother to bite off the little criminal? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Like, Oh, well, let's just have them rape and murder their daughter. Yeah. That's, that's just, that's easy. Let's just do that. Um, I spit on your grave. The whole thing is, you know, that's a woman who's sexually assaulted. The, the townies that did it think that she's dead and she's not. Yeah. Sorry. If you haven't seen that and we're looking forward to it. Um, maybe someday. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it, yeah. And you can go over to more like mainstream. I, I like the taken series with Liam Neeson or going back to, mm -hmm. I think isn't that yeah. death wish. That's all based on, you know, they yeah. raped and killed my daughter. So I'm going to, yeah, you know, absolutely. Unleash. Right. And see, unfortunately there's no like last house on your left three with, uh, <laughs> rocket launchers and gangs, <laughs> but I guess you can't have everything. Um, <laughs> right. It would be interesting to have something like I drink your blood having a, a larger footprint aside outside of just the um kind of the hardcore horror aficionados who are really studying yeah, the genre and, and the it's all of its scene. Yeah, yeah. Just because like it it actually marries the what Craven what well, let's prescribe what Craven was doing to um infuse those slapsticky humorous cops mm -hmm, parts mm -hmm. into this rather wretched imagery that you're that you're sitting through and it takes that and it puts those two things so freaking goofy together into something that is just crazy and it is actually kind of fun to watch because of how weird it is 
Yeah, and and so very intentionally provocative. Like he's completely mm-hmm. jerking the audience's chain. Like uh, you know, not only just the comedy of the cops and and just kind of this crude kind of slapstick bumbling oaf sheriff and his little sidekick and and there's the the black woman and the chicken truck and just really incongruous stuff compared to the mood of everything else but but it is it's kind of like we can do this uh you can't stop us we're going to just kind of f with your head this way by you know taking you all over the emotional map and just mashing things together that in conventional and professionally made movies are not typically you know put in such close proximity to each other uh that in itself is kind of bold and innovative um and you know there's a there's a certain sensibility uh, that enjoys that kind of random crazy you know juxtaposition and, and transition from one thing to something you know seemingly the opposite and just sort of feeling the emotional dissonance that comes from having those elements you know jammed up side by side against each other to be fair i've never met anyone who defends the chicken truck scene okay (laughs) well yeah i'm not gonna defend it right i'm not gonna defend it but if like just i had this vision right now of getting ready for dinner like what craven said about people watching vietnam news footage during dinner yep like watching that and then immediately going and watching an episode of andy griffith yeah yeah that it kind of gets that feeling of oh what's the word i want like buffoonery almost. Well, yeah, it is. It's it's lowbrow humor that, you know, you might laugh at if it's like a Dukes of Hazard episode or something along that line. If the whole thing is about bumbling sheriffs, you know, Burt Reynolds, Cannonball Run or something like that, then you just, that's just part of the whole shtick. You know, you got your cool car chasers and racers, and then you got the cops who are trying to, you know, Smokey and the Bandit type of thing, you know. But this brings those elements and puts it into something that's appallingly dreadful. And so do you allow yourself to laugh or does this cheapen the tragedy of these young women who are, you know, and again, the fact that they're young women, teenage girls, you know, uh, pretty, defenseless, extremely vulnerable, but they've got their whole life ahead of them. I mean, that just brings out all of the sort of protective instincts and any little bit of sort of chivalrous, uh, I, you know, idea that a, a guy might have to want to, you know, protect the, the weak and the vulnerable from, uh, you know, f- you know, keep them out of harm's way. Again, you know, these girls are out there looking to party, looking for weed to get a, at a concert. Is there some shaming going on? Is there some victim blaming moralizing not really but it it does feel like he's at least putting that out there that this is a a a dangerous situation for a young woman to get into so you better watch your step and and be on guard of who you uh associate with i don't know it's just just kind of some interesting notions that he's putting in there and maybe a, a way of trying to satirize the uh the upper middle class and the uh you know the generation gap the the parents who are trying to be with it but are kind of clueless and kind of out of touch he probably imagined that this was a film that was going to be seen by mostly younger people so he's kind of maybe winning them over that way by you know mocking their parents a little bit just a few ideas 
that never ends well <laughs> when they right. presume what the audience is actually going to be yeah well obviously the the audience you know has continued to grow and has pulled in lots and lots of different types of people over the years uh, we've mentioned the music sometime a few times and i think that's another key piece that i felt made the film pretty powerful i, I really you know, the more I've listened to it, and I've listened to it probably several times through over the past week or so, the David Hess uh, soundtrack music. Um, again, mm-hmm. some of that music is kind of, you know, picking and grinning, you know, almost like you know, car chase music. The baddies theme, I think, is the, one of the songs I'm thinking of. But the melancholy tones of the music and the fact that, you know, it's a little bit more on the subliminal side, but the actor who's doing these you know, depraved things as the same person who's singing now you're all alone and the road leads to nowhere and you know wait for the rain i mean the the, the vibe of those songs I, I i felt was really quite um striking the way it went both in sync with the images as well as kind of cut against them in some instances and and i don't know i don't know how this soundtrack compares to you know comparable films that have been named as far as some of the low budget horror but i felt like that was maybe an element that made this film pretty distinctive in its own way it it definitely is it doesn't it does not feel like this the normal soundtrack for this kind of film yeah i'm not sure i agree that it works that well I, i think it's i think it's really good music i don't there's a few songs in particular i think that are the ones that really seal the deal for me but go ahead yeah, I'd say setting aside some things that I think are terrible ideas, like the little you know music that that plays it sometimes at completely inappropriate moments. The kazoo and all of that. Yeah, right, right, right. I think the songs are very nice. I think at times they end up like reaching towards the impact the film's trying to have and doesn't have. At times, it makes it worse for me. Right. Like they're very almost on the nose stating the theme that they want to be hitting that I don't think they're hitting. Hmm. So at times it makes the film worse for me, but okay. yeah. it's at least like completely like unique. Um, it, it's never dull. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's very listenable. I think apparently David has had, you know his own career as a as an artist and as a musician he i think he eventually got the rights and sold the album himself and it's available on streaming services which is kind of where i've gotten a handle on it it's one of the discs in the arrow set right yeah i think that's the third disc i think there's two blu-rays one with the uncut version and all the supplements and then two alternate cuts do you have that set jason I do. do. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Because that I only have like the basic single disc Arrow Blu-ray, which I got mm-hmm. for a pretty good deal, I don't know, months ago. But I, when I saw that this was coming yeah. up, uh, I know that that big set was out there a few years ago. Uh, tell us about it. Uh, well, the the main disc has the fully restored uncut version, mm-hmm. and that's what I watched. And it, I mean, it looks good. Yeah. Not great. That's probably the one that the one that you have mm-hmm. and it just has tons and tons of interviews on it right uh but the other disc has um two different cuts you might call it one's an alternate essentially just an alternate title maybe with a couple seconds here and there called the krug and company yeah 
and then there's just an R-rated version of the film. Okay. Um, with there's a couple other documentaries on here as well. It, I mean, it's a, it's as close to what you might call a definitive set. Right. It's got the postcards uh, and a poster and uh, like yeah, my arrow, yeah. my arrow just and doesn't have an insert. There's no booklet or anything. It's just the disc with yeah, stuff on it's it. It's got right. a full, like a uh, 56 page perfect bound book. Wow. Yeah. Uh, with a lots of really, really great pictures. And there's a whole section on the advertising, but it's just primarily a long form uh, Stephen Thrower essay. Okay. Uh, where he does uh, his own style of documenting uh, everything there is about it. Um, I wouldn't, if I was uh, wanting to visit this film, I wouldn't overpay for this set. Right. Which is probably out um, of print now. But I imagine. Yeah, yeah sure. Uh, it's, this was a, a FOMO purchase. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And, and it's, it's looks like a, a beautiful edition, you know, with all the goodies and stuff. Mm -hmm. But what I've heard is that those alternate cuts really, it's not like the movie was completely remade or, you know, I think, I think the biggest difference in the Krugen company cut is that the parents actually find Mary alive in that film or in that version, but it's only for a few seconds Hmm. and that's how they get her body back to their house. But then she dies anyways, because you sort of, you see her laying on the sofa, which is kind of weird because like she died in the lake and they dragged her out. Go ahead. They do find her in the unrated cut. Well, they find her, but she was not a, 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 what she's already dead. She's already dead. Right. Right. Well, presumably. Yeah. But apparently in the Krugen company, they, she was still alive and, shared some information with him. I, that's something I've read anyway, so I'd, I I could be wrong or whatever, but it seemed like probably worked better to not have that that encounter. So, But yeah, but it doesn't seem like they say that this film was released under many different titles. Uh, Sex Crime of the Century, Night of Vengeance was the working title. There's the script. It's shown in a still image I saw there somewhere. Uh, Night of Vengeance, probably the most accurate title. In fact, there's Mm -hmm. really never any reference to a last house on the left. And when they pull up to the house, it's on the, you know, the right hand side of the road when you see the vehicles (laughs) drive up. So, but, uh, and even the marketing about uh, it's on built on 13 acres of earth over the very center of hell. That again, it conjures up this cursed territory, this supernatural, you know, is it, buried is it built over a graveyard or is there some portal to uh, some satanic dimension there's none of that in this here, you know so yeah. you're right the title and the marketing really were just uh shrewd master strokes of of getting folks attention and getting their butts mm-hmm. in the theater you know which at the end of the day is the job <laughs> exactly and they succeeded marvelously mm-hmm. this title ends up being used like in variations for lots of other films. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ironically, given how, how much I've knocked the movie, I have that three disc set too. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting because Richard, yeah, I think you've said whether on this episode or, or elsewhere on social media that you had sort of a visceral hatred for this movie, or at least a, a real negative opinion. I think you've come across, you know, with a pretty measured critical, you know, and, and defensible take on, on yeah. all of this. But the fact that you had such a negative 
view of the film and he's still sprung for the deluxe edition. That's pretty interesting. Well, there's two things. One, I'd say my, my visceral reaction to this film is largely it crosses a line with the death of those girls and it never does anything to get you back over the line. Like I didn't, I didn't want to put it quite that way because it, it that's, it's hard to argue with that point. Right. Yeah. But that's how I feel about it. Right. That it, it's essentially crossing a line I don't like, which is sympathizing with the people who are doing the terrible thing. Well, and I think doesn't Wes Craven say that that's one of was one of his objectives was just at least exploring this forbidden zone, you know, or at least again going back to that messing with audience expectations, you know, presenting them with this really confusing and and disturbing. Yeah, dilemma this this choice of who are you going to root for uh, is it possible to sympathize with these killers it shouldn't be that i mean you, you can do it but you have to close that door yeah so you don't just stay there walking out of the theater yes. like yeah and, th- and those... I think it fails to like to everything it tries to do after that with the family's revenge is to attempt to close that door and it, i don't think it succeeds do you think if the family's revenge had been realized more, um, you know, in a more satisfying way, or if they had maybe de-emphasized the, the torture uh, that they put the girls through, would, would that have balanced things? I mean, you know, it's all hypothetical because you can't really yeah. undo the movie or remake it. I mean, I guess perhaps it if it, it, perhaps if it hadn't thought that they've, the, the parents should be an object of derision. I think that might be the problem. Yeah, right. Because the parents are pretty much buffoons the whole time. Yeah. And even the way they execute the kills is just like almost like lucky. <laughs> you know, like especially with the with the mother, you know, slashing the throat of this woman, Sadie, who would have mm-hmm. torn the stuffing out of her if it had been just a you know one-on-one matchup, you know. But she falls in the pool, she tries to get out, and right at that minute you know, mom has the knife ready to go. Um, but yeah, even, even like the booby traps, um, you know, putting the wires and the shaving cream, I mean, that's kind of silly, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, um, I, I guess, you know, again, I, I, I've seen the original nightmare on Elm street once way back when I've never seen any of the scream movies, but apparently Wes Craven has a big thing about booby traps and, um, yeah. Yeah, mouse traps, things of that sort, right? I never really thought of that, but yeah, Nightmare on Elm Street re- revisits the booby trap thing. Yeah, but yeah. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, I own the movie because I keep feeling like maybe one day I'll change my mind because it's an important, <laughs> important film, right? So I've yeah. watched it like maybe eight or nine times over my life, and I feel like a glutton for punishment in that respect. <laughs> I, yeah, I think that a lot of your complaints could have been easily worked out if David Hess wasn't the the main bad guy yeah. and the parents had any charisma. Yeah, I agree. I don't want to say that they're bad actors because they know how to do their job. Yeah. But if they had better actors in those positions, because I've seen plenty of revenge films in which the person seeking revenge is more empathetic than the killers yeah to go back to what you were saying about how uh, Wes Craven was trying to create a a bad guy that you can 
empathize with, uh, paraphrased, uh, we've already discussed how amazing the marketing of this is. And for the producer and the director and the marketing department to be at odds over their intent, mm. he's going to want to say, I would, uh, I'm going to put some words in his mouth that he's trying to say something that will continue to sell the film mm. because that's the job. Yeah, yeah, because now this has become a part of the horror movie canon, right? This is a film that mm -hmm. has a certain respectability. Uh, it's not just a sleazy, trashy little romp that takes you into naughty places that, you know, <laughs> your mother wouldn't want to see you going. Um, it, it, well, I've heard it. <laughs> sure. Well, and, 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 and there's definitely... Uh, an appeal to being this, you know, forbidden fruit, this, this taboo breaker uh, that dares to go where, where, you know, meeker, milder uh, filmmakers won't. Um, that is a badge of honor in its favor, but mm -hmm. you know, Wes Craven, I think we've already discussed, you know, he, he has his own sort of thoughtfulness, his intelligence uh, and, and his desire to make this film a statement about the culture at large that has, uh, you know, a, a critique and, and a, a point of view to, to sort of challenge some of the things that occur in this world that, that we don't like, whether it's random violence, exploitation of women, um, you know, even, even the fussiness of overprotective parents and kind of their, this kind of this, the, the trivialities of, of suburban life and all of that. I mean, I don't know there, there's, there are lots of little moments of statements, I guess, that are being made in, in interactions of different characters. Uh, when Sadie's talking about Sigmund Freud and male chauvinist dogs. I mean, he's, he's, he's talking about, you know, stuff that's happening in the, in the culture of the time, uh, sort of the, the, um, you know the the middle brow intelligentsia and all of that so you know there, there yeah there's there's material here that you can sift through and 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 get value from uh but i think overall this is a you know this is a an exercise in shock and sensationalism kind of for its own sake i mean that that's kind of what my bottom line is and so uh, to what extent is that you know valued worthwhile respectable uh something to to you know sustain our our attention and to get us you know applying the lessons of last house on the left <laughs> to today's you know contemporary uh, moral and ethical dilemmas i guess you know it's going to you know as they say your mileage is going to vary from from viewer to viewer uh, but the fact that this film has taken on us its, its its own sense of importance because of the influence and the 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 careers that it, that it launched, um, you know, it's, it's like the, it is, it's this phenomenon that is, uh, probably going to continue to, to reverberate for a while. Um, uh, even as, even as a uh, horror cinema goes in new directions. And I kind of wanted to bring one up that maybe either of you, Jason or Richard have a, uh, a, a take on, which is a movie called terrifier two. Um, have either of you seen it yet or heard much about it? I have. Okay, well, let me, I've seen well let me just read a little bit about the, the lead from Variety. This kind of came up in my Facebook feed. It's a October 31 dot byline. It says, have you heard of the movie that's so disturbingly stomach-churning, so horrifyingly gruesome, it's allegedly causing some audience members to vomit, 
faint and even need to get carried out of movie theaters? That very question, the movie, by the way, is Terrifier 2, is inspiring horror fiends and skeptics to go to their local cinemas in droves to assess the hype for themselves. And it's like, wow, this whole cycle is just playing itself out all over again. But go ahead and tell me about Terrifier 2. Jason, I think you said you've seen it? Yes. Okay. Um, is this the is this the heir to Last House on the Left, or is it something different? <laughs> different. Okay. Totally different. Um, I had seen Terrifier 1 when it came out a couple years ago. And so I had an idea of what could be happening. Terrifier 2, I can I can honestly see people throwing up watching it. Okay. It is incredibly gruesome. Um and the the violence is beyond what it needed to be. However, this is the an interesting happening was that so they're making Terrifier 2, everything's going as according to plan. And then all of a sudden, a pandemic happens. Okay. So Terrifier uh, 1 was Terrifier pre-pandemic? 2. Correct. Okay. Terrifier 2 started the production pre-pandemic. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, now, Terrifier 2, or both of the films, are written, directed, edited, and have special effects by the same person. Okay. So they're a real so, labor of love. person put everything they had yes. into it, right? Okay. So they had... Uh, Damien Leone had a plan and then suddenly he had two more years to work on the effects. Mm, okay. And so he took them 500% more than they needed to be. Mm. And he like, and he didn't tell people like he didn't tell people that were on set working some of the changes that he made. Okay, so uh, so some of the I would assume it's 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 blood and gore and stuff that absolutely. maybe the actors themselves weren't seeing all that happen to them while they were portraying the parts. It's it's done in post production or one like yeah. one specific thing. Like he actually in his time apart took the made a a, a dummy that Art the Clown would be doing his uh, grossness to. Uh, but also made it an animatronic okay. that would, at a specific time, would turn a, turn their head and say, Mommy, Ooh. and it scared the living shit out of everybody <laughs> on set. Okay. Wow. Oh, oh so, and so everybody was surprised. Nobody saw this coming except maybe yeah, the director. Absolutely not. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so you're getting real reactions yeah, in the moment. Yeah. Okay, sure. <laughs> um, including Art, the, the actor, Art the Clown, who is in frame okay. at that moment. Okay. Uh, it's I, comparing the two. I can't watch last house on the left in 1972. I can't have that sensibility going into right. it. Um, if you are going to terrify or two thinking like on a dare, like you've liked scream, you've liked some of the, the gateway horror movies, but you haven't really seen something with the real guts to it. Right. I can see you totally fainting and freaking out seeing terrifier. Too. Okay. Yeah. Um, and now I'm not paid at all to say these things. Right. It is an experience. Okay. See, and th that that's like, I it, have a hard time recommending. It's an experience. Right. Yourself, it's only a movie. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> That'll get you past all the rough yeah, patches, right? Yourself, holy shit. <laughs> holy shit. I'm seeing this in a regal cinema. 
Yeah, well, that's the thing because you know, even even movie going was so different in the late seventies, and even you know in the mm-hmm. prime time of Nightmare on Elm Street and and uh, you know Friday the Thirteenth, I wasn't seeing those films back then in cineplexes. They didn't really exist in the same way. Uh, where now it's like, yeah, this is the same place you see, you know, your Pixar movies and your, uh, you know, your superhero stuff and and whatever. But you know, but what struck me was just how this, all those things, vomit inducing, mm-hmm. fainting, you know, and 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 the inherent challenge: can you handle it? Are you man enough? Or are you tough enough? Are you oh, yeah. a badass enough to to make it through this movie? It's like okay, challenge accepted, right? I'm gonna, I I have to go see this now because this is this is at the very frontier of tolerance and tastefulness. Uh, Richard, have you seen this film, or is it on your radar no. somewhere? Okay, no. no, I'm kind of angry because no, I think I <laughs> might have to. And I don't want to <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll I'll say this, Richard. It it as this would be a full Terrifier Two is a full indie film. All right. Um, it's I'm trying to even imagine what to compare it to. Like it's just gruesome. I'm just I'm just irritated by this stupid clown. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. It's why well, I mean <laughs> in the first Terrifier they they broke the rules. Yeah. The the proverbial rules in that he used a firearm oh. as the slasher. This is just oh. not supposed to happen. Right. So they already said, Hey, we're going to change what you're expe- uh, expecting. And in this it it they successfully elevate whereas i've seen plenty of part twos that toe the line ah crap (laughs) (laughs) Um, Uh, maybe this will help it is painfully long oh Oh, that's right two and a half hours or something like that is that oh my god unnecessarily long (laughs) what Um, so truly an endurance test you know like right yeah yeah Uh, uh. there's plenty of time for you to go to the bathroom um, oh. Two and a half <laughs> hours? I think it's 2.15, but still, yeah. it's, it's way too long for a slasher-adjacent film. Yeah, so basically, though, it's it's gone up in screens. I think it, opening weekend was 886 screens, and it's dropped 700 for the second weekend, but the grosses actually went up. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, they're up in the... Uh, you know, several million, and it's not, yeah, like you say, this is a low budget, relatively speaking, indie film that seems mm-hmm. to be really catching fire. So, yeah, interesting. I will say it's not, it's no, nowhere near my favorite of the year. Yeah. Uh, it, it could, it, it deserves attention because of its effects and because it goes, it goes there. All right. Well, do we have anything else that we have yet to say about this film? Um, I have one question. Sure. Is their phone actually broken or not? Oh, yeah. yeah. They go in there, they cut those wires, but it's like, yeah, okay. (laughs) The phone's broken, the phone's fixed, the phone's broken, the phone's fixed. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. All right. 
well, I've really enjoyed the conversation. I feel like, yeah, we've, we've had a chance to, to pick, pick through the bones, so, so to speak. And, uh, you know, I definitely like to hear if there's any listeners who've got comments of their own about this film and about maybe, uh, its impact, whether they have just more recently seen it for the first time, or if you've known about this film and have watched it multiple times over the years, I'm kind of curious to continue gathering, um, insights from people in deeper verse in the horror genre than myself. Uh, but I, I definitely, you know, like I say, I, I'm glad we've had this conversation. I'm definitely ready to move on to some other things. And, uh, you know, and we'll we'll get to what I've got lined up for future episodes uh, in a minute. But, Jason, I wanted to talk to you a little bit and hear about your uh, budding career okay. as an audiobook narrator. Um, I've kind of oh, followed my. you on social media. And I some of the regular listeners of this podcast have... Uh, Kind of probably seen some of your posts, but I'd like to give you a chance to just tell us a little bit about how that process is going. And first of all, congratulations. Uh, has that book been published yet? Yeah, or is, I know it's been accepted as far as the file is concerned. Um, I keep refreshing my email. <laughs> okay. It's currently in uh, the, uh, I, I went through a website called ACX where it matches um, voice, uh, voice actors, narrators with, um, primarily indie authors and indie books. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been learning, this was the, my first one is almost going to be available. God willing in the Creek don't rise that I have to redo anything. Yeah. Um, I th- I'm pretty sure they're just, it's, uh, I imagine the QC is making sure that there is a relatively seamless audio without any major pops or cracks or anything. Plus it's going to go through the copyright stuff. Um, make sure I didn't put in some John Williams music or something. <laughs> um, yeah. But and you did all the editing uh, yourself at, at your home studio, yes. right? Yeah. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, yes, that's, that's kind. I am, uh, I'm in my, uh, recording booth, which is a closet. Uh, <laughs> I do have some of the fancy yeah. foam up, but yeah. I also have a lot of clothing that helps to deaden the sound. Uh, dead in the echoes. Uh, it's it's an interesting thing to have the full time job and then come home and having to battle with lawn mowers and now leaf blowers. Um, yeah, because you've really got to block out all and, the external noise. I mean, even yeah. a bump or you know uh, a conversation from the next room if it bleeds in, it can really mess things up, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's it's a lot of fun. It's kind of stressful. Um, it's weird as hell <laughs> to yeah. have conversations between like four, like arguments between characters mm-hmm. uh, coming out of your mouth yeah. while sitting in a closet. Well, you're certainly pursuing something that's been on my mind. I mean, people have told me for years, oh, you ought to do audio books or blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, you know, and I, and I do, I do enjoy talking and, um, you know, mm-hmm. uh, doing this kind of podcasting I mean, as a guy who's done both i mean how does how does audio booking compare to podcasting obviously podcasting is a well, free flow but interesting your thoughts since like i've done solo podcasting yeah. which is kind of lame for lack of a better terms because it's just you you have to feed everything this conversation 
is good because it, since with a multiple people, it gives you a chance to consider what you're going to say. And you, know, you feed um, off each other and you, you, know, you, you mm-hmm. riff off of somebody else's point. Right. So there's a lot, lot more of a dynamic energy there, but, but even just, in the you know, audio book, mm-hmm. it's just like, okay, these are the weird things that this weird person. And I don't think, I don't think the author would mind me saying that wrote down <laughs> yeah somehow yeah. thought it was it's i've said some things that are uh are reprehensible uh it's this first one that should be coming out soon it's called home invaded it's uh home invasion oh uh, right on topic no, for what uh, we're talking no, about uh, today in some ways yeah yeah uh <laughs> it's an hour and a half and it's going to be impossible to sell <laughs> okay uh, just because of how vicious and brutal it becomes okay like i'm like telling all my friends on facebook hey i'm doing this thing i'm doing it it's uh, i got people from church that are looking <laughs> clicking like and yeah family that's doing that i'm like but just if you want to support me you know buy it that's great i'll appreciate it stop at 30 minutes <laughs> you know yeah you've heard my voice you've heard my 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 rookie season season range right stop yeah at any point in time you listen you're like oh this is making me a little uncomfortable it's going to get worse very um, interesting yeah i and, and, and yeah, it, it does make me think i mean Wes craven i think himself instead of one of those interviews or commentary tracks that he really thought this movie was going to be something that he did sort of on the side that his family would never know mm-hmm. about it was kind of this little sort of private quadrant of his life where he was just kind of you know being regular old Wes Craven that us, his family and friends knew, except he had this little side hobby over here and then all of a sudden it blows up and he's got to go back home and tell mom and dad what he really does for a living. Not, not that yeah. I'm putting you in that situation exactly, but yeah, I, I understand what you're saying, especially for me. I mean, I, I have my own, you know, when I talk about a film like this one or Pink Flamingos, it's like, boy, what if some of my relatives or coworkers do this? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I feel mean, for you, brother. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. I am I have been totally honest with people. Yeah. Like, listen, this is weird shit. <laughs> exactly. I yeah. have told you this. I have warned you. If you want to listen, go go with God, but <laughs> don't come back. I didn't write the thing. Yeah. I'm sorry, um, you're just lending and, the voice. Uh-huh. Yeah. And being my first project, I didn't feel like I had any agency yes. to say no this is beneath me i'm sorry <laughs> yeah. right right well that's cool no, though I, I, and i definitely I, wish you all the best uh, I, I assume that thanks. you've gotten to this point you're going to continue pursuing that so uh i know, build that i resume. already have uh, an agreement on a second book and i've got some other auditions out so cool uh it's very 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 far from being a quit your job sort of thing <laughs> right but you got to start somewhere, it's, you know? I, yeah. yeah. And I, I enjoyed, I got air quotes, enjoy doing it. Cause some of the things that I've had to say is just weird. <laughs> and you got to stick know, to the whatever. script. Too. There's, there's no, Hey, Hey, yeah, Hey absolutely. author, I got a few tips for you here <laughs> or yeah. Okay. That's part of the deal. Well, cool. Well, thank you for that update, Jason. Like I say, yeah. I do wish you sure. all the best Thanks success and good having you on the show. Mm-hmm. Richard, you got any little uh, tidbits you want to throw our way as far as updates or final statements? I'm never up to much of anything. I go to work. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Okay. Well, at least give you the courtesy of a, of a, of a, of a request, uh, an opportunity to fill us in. But uh, yeah, you, you keep us plenty of news with your Facebook feed and I always appreciate the chuckles and uh, you know, the, the occasional wordle con- conquests and all of that. So, all right. My next episode is going to be Zadoichi and Desperation. Yes, I'm going back to that big box set, Spine 679. This is the Zadoichi of 1972. Uh, the description says that star Shintaro Katsu sits in the director's chair for this psychedelic and unremittingly bleak entry in the Zadoichi series, which is unlike any other in its grindhouse grim- grimness. <laughs> so I guess I'm not quite out of the woods yet <laughs> as far as uh, the, the themes of uh, this film are concerned. A tale of innocent, corrupted by sadistic, sleazy criminality. The film is propelled by Easy Rider editing and a trippy 70s funk score by kunihiko murai so <laughs> sounds like i'm going to be making a pretty smooth transition from last house on the left to zadoichi and desperation <laughs> so <laughs> things will lighten up one of these days i know i got cries and whispers on the horizon somewhere <laughs> oh that'll be a hoot. i'm glad i'm on for that one because that sounds awesome <laughs> yeah, it does. It does sound pretty interesting. So yeah, I think it's going to be you, me, uh, you, Richard, me, and and Robert Taylor is going to jump back on in this one. I had a chat with him the other day, so I'm looking forward to that. So that's what we got in store for you, listeners. I'll also say that Trevor Barrett and I are going to be doing a, uh, another Inside the Box uh, episode, um, the uh, Rossellini and Ingrid Bergman set. So that'll mm-hmm. be coming up fairly soon. Uh, we've got it scheduled for a uh, two weekends from now so two weeks from today mid-november try to get that one out before thanksgiving so that's on the uh that's on the agenda folks uh, thank you for listening in and we will get back to you soon here's a little bit more of david hess crooning and serenading us as we pull away from last house on the left bye-bye thank you very much for having me david you know jason thanks